Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you'll turn over there, I'll meet you there in just a moment. When I was a boy, we were transporting a little steer in the back of a pickup truck. And my dad had taught me to respect the back end of any sort of an animal that can kick. And he taught us when we were boys how to be careful not to get kicked by an animal like that. And when we were moving that steer that day, he warned me and he said, now you stay away from the back end of that steer. But being little boys, we started fooling around and doing this and that. Of course, that was back in the days when you could ride in the back of a pickup without getting pulled over by a police officer. And we also did things like ride in the back of the station wagon without a car seat and all kinds of dangerous things. It's really a miracle I lived through childhood, to be honest with you. But we were in the back of that pickup, and we started fooling around like boys do and didn't realize I was getting so close to the back of that steer. And the next thing you know, I saw the hoof of that steer go right there past my eyes and just grazed my forehead. And I thought... I think that's what dad meant when he said, be careful around the back end of that steer. Brother Al Wells, who was a cowboy preacher, used to say, there's two kinds of sense, common sense and horse sense. Horse sense is the kind that gets kicked into you. It's better to have common sense. It's even better to learn from the sense or the wisdom of God I want to say to the young people who are here tonight, you really don't have to go through the school of hard knocks. If you insist, then you could learn some things that way, but there's a much better way to learn from the wisdom of God. When we think about Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we're not yet to the part of the book where he's sharing God's wisdom, but he is coming to the place where he's starting to see some things. And the things that he's starting to see is because of experience, what we just referred to as horse sense. The wise man has had some things happen to him, which has caused him to respect some things about life. And in Ecclesiastes 4, he makes three statements, really four statements, but three that we're going to look at tonight, wherein he says, there's a better way. There's a better way than what I've experienced and what I've gone through. We want to look in verse number four. We left off last time dealing with verses four through six, but we're going to circle back and touch on it again as we think about this better way. And he writes, again, I considered all travail and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is, he, this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is an handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor, neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. Two are better than one, 
because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There's no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Three statements about a better way, a better way to live. These are things that the preacher had learned by experience, the wisdom that he had gleaned under the sun. It's also good to point out that the truths that he's stating here as a better way are reinforced in other places of Scripture as truth, as true statements and something to be considered. Therefore, it's not just worldly wisdom, but it's God's wisdom that he had come by in a more difficult way. You know, people do that. They come by God's wisdom in a more difficult way. And that's sad, but sometimes we're stubborn as human beings. And instead of listening to God's instructions, we insist on finding out for ourselves. And remember that God is always true and every man is a liar. So you can be sure that when God says things like the way of transgressors is hard, it really is hard, it really is going to be difficult, it really is going to be painful. Now in chapter 4 here, the wise man makes three observations about a better way to live. And he's contrasting these with the way of the world. The way of the world is characterized by three primary characteristics, covetousness, selfishness, and pride. In, second, or in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the Bible tells us that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are the basic elements of the world system. They always have been, and they always will be until God redeems this world. And ironically, in chapter 4, Solomon addresses these three things, and he tells us that there is a better way. Notice with me, first of all, in verses 4 through 6, he tells us that contentment is better. It's better to live with contentment. Now, we're not going to spend a great deal of time on these verses because we touched on this in the last message that I preached in this series but you notice in verse 6 that he makes this statement, better is a handful with quietness. It's better to have a little bit, just enough to fit in your hands and to have a quiet life than it is to have both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. And I thought, how we must learn this lesson. When we're young, we have a tendency to think, that getting more is always going to be better. 
that whoever dies with the most toys wins. But the reality is, as you start to get older, and maybe you've accumulated some of those things, you start to realize that those things don't really bring happiness. They don't really bring satisfaction. In fact, once you get to a certain place in your life, it's likely that you'll start getting rid of a lot of those things. Because instead of bringing you satisfaction, they bring you frustration. They get in the way. You can't ever find what you want anyway. I might as well give it away or sell sell it to someone. But it's this idea that having more is not always better. Now, I realize that this, this flies in the face of and counter to the wisdom, particularly of American culture, where bigger is always better and more is best. And so the bigger, how, the, bigger the house, the better the house. The, the bigger the, the truck, the better the truck. The, the, the more stuff in your garage, the better off you are, or whatever it is that people have in their minds. But see, Solomon had discovered something. He had discovered through the difficulty of accumulating all these things and being disappointed, he found that covetousness is not all that it's cracked up to be. Actually, covetousness, as he mentions in verse number six, brings with it travail and vexation of spirit. Covetousness brings a snare to us and it brings much trouble to our lives. Turn with me, hold your place in Ecclesiastes 4. And turn with me back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 6. <clears throat> this principle is addressed in the New Testament. So you don't have to learn it by hard experience. You can just take God's word for it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 6. But godliness with contentment is great, what is the next word? Gain. It's an asset on your balance sheet to have godliness with contentment. The IRS won't even tax you for it, which is pretty incredible, because they figure out a way to tax everything, but they can't tax that one. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Verse 9 goes on to warn us that they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's a tremendous reminder to us, and you can go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's a tremendous reminder to us that we don't have to have a lot in order to be happy. God promises to take care of our needs. And if we have enough to eat and we have clothes to wear, if our necessities are met, if we have the things that we need, then we have much to be thankful for. There's a tremendous blessing that comes to us when we have enough and we're good with that. We're content with that. We don't, we don't need or think we need to get something more. Contentment is a much better way of life. How many people are spinning their wheels in the rat race trying to get more for what? For what? Do you ever think about it? 
Why do we do all this? So often to impress the people who live next door so they can see what we have. Do you think they really care? Do you really think it, it changes their life? I mean, honestly, how much stuff could we get rid of and still have enough? Probably quite a bit. And so he reminds us that contentment is better. We would solve a lot of our problems in life if we would simply be content with what God has provided instead of always striving to get more, more, more. Contentment is better. But now, draw your attention to verses 7 through 12. He makes a second statement, companionship is better. He makes the statement very plainly, again, two are better than one. So he told us in, in verse 6, better is a handful with quietness. Now he tells us in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Two are better than one. Now, many people refer to this section in the book of Ecclesiastes at weddings and, and they talk about the bonds of marriage. And, and certainly we'll talk in a little bit about the importance of this passage and how it does apply to marriage. But this is not primarily a marriage passage. This is primarily a passage which reminds us that none of us should be alone. That that we have a basic human need for other people. None of us is wired to be a lone ranger. He he notices a man in verse number 8... And he describes this man. He says, there is one alone, and there's not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor. And I don't think he's, in verse 8, I don't think he's describing a lonely only. I don't think he's just pointing out some guy who's a loner, who likes to be by himself. I think he's making a point and, and, and he really belabors the point in the rest of verse number 8 that this man who's alone is doing all this work. He's doing all of these things, but who is he doing this for? So it's just him. But why is it just him? Why is he alone? Because the truth is, if you think about it, in our culture, we're told, we're taught, in this individualistic culture in which we live that you alone are enough, that you can go it yourself. And in fact, in order to be successful, you really are going to have to be willing to jettison any and all relationships in your life. Many people in our society, in order to get more money, have compromised their family relationships. Many people, to get more power, have clawed and fought to the top of the corporate ladder, leaving all the corpses of dead relationships behind them on the way up. To them, it was more important to be powerful. Many people have gotten to a place of success only to find when they got to that successful place that everybody was gone. No one was around them anymore. How many workaholic fathers have lost relationships with their children because they were so busy building a career that they forgot to be present for their children. 
How many marriages have been broken because one or other or maybe both of the spouses were so busy pursuing their individual goals that they became ships passing in the night. You see, this is what he's referring to. He's referring to the tendency that we have to jettison relationships to get the things that we think we want. But in the end, what we're going to find is that all those things are not going to make us happy. And companionship is actually a primary need of human beings. In other words, what is more important than what we get is who comes with us. We end up using people to get things. And this is upside down from God's value system. He describes this man and says, here's this man who's working, 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 working. He's doing all these things, yet there's no end of his labor. He's just working all the time. His eye is not satisfied with riches, but he never asks the question, who am I doing all this for? He's alone. I think I've shared this illustration before. Years ago, before I was married, I was traveling cross-country. I was uh, going, I, I was traveling to several different churches where I interned for a month at each place, and there were a couple long, long road trips in between, and I remember one particular time I was traveling from the West Coast all the way up near Seattle down towards the Midwest, and I was traveling by myself, and as I was going, I mean, it's beautiful country, big sky country there through Montana and Wyoming and Colorado, beautiful place. And I thought I should stop and see some of the sites. And I remember seeing on the map that there was the place where uh, General Custer was defeated by the Indians. And I thought that would be a good place to stop. And so I pulled into the parking lot and I got out and I read a couple signs and I looked at across the battlefield and I said to myself, wow, that's nice, isn't it? And then I thought, this is kind of not that exciting to see by myself. It's not really that interesting to see by myself. It, it'd be so much nicer if there was someone to share this with. But there wasn't. I was traveling alone. And to be honest with you, I love history. And I had just read some things about that battle. And I was fascinated with all that. But I was kind of done with looking at something by myself. So I got back in my car and I kept driving. Because when it comes right down to it, God has made us to be social creatures. God said it's not good for man to be alone. That was when God made Eve for Adam. Now, when we think about God not making man to be alone, then he gives us some word pictures here in these verses. Look at this. In verse number 10, really verse 9, he starts by saying two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Now, I want to point something out about that phrase in verse 9. There is a reward that comes from laboring with someone else that is a reward all by itself. Without even accomplishing something or getting any payment for the job, there's a reward to companionship in work. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's like the difference between going door knocking by yourself and going door knocking with another person. Or working on a project by yourself or working together with another person. There's a, there's a specialness that's involved in that. So, you know, there's things, for instance, that I could do 
by myself working on the car. And, and certainly there's times when I do that. I'm trying to get a, a job accomplished. It's just easier for me to do it and get it finished. But then there's times when I'll say to one of my boys, why don't you come and help me? Now, if I have my seven-year-old helping me change the oil on the truck, he's not usually terribly helpful. But there's a different kind of a reward that comes with that. It's the reward of teaching him something. It's the reward of togetherness. It's the reward of companionship. But now take that picture and let's think about what he paints for us here to describe why it's important that we have companionship. Verse number 10, he says, If they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. So the first picture that he paints for us is that if you're on a journey, if you're, if you're out on a, on a hike or something and you fall and you're alone, what if you have a heavy pack? Now, how are you going to get up? Now, I know you could figure out a way. You could, make, you, could, you could make it work. It's no problem. But isn't it nice to have somebody along to reach down and give you their hand and pull you up? And I want you to think about that spiritually with me for a second. Isn't it a blessing to have companions in this spiritual journey that we're on? That when we stumble and fall, when we become discouraged, when we're weighed down with burdens, there's someone to come alongside and reach out a hand and say, hey, brother, I'm here with you. Let me, let me help you up. Uh, let's pray together. Let, let me help you with that burden. Two are better than one. Listen, sometimes as believers, we, we prefer not to tell anyone what is going on in our life. We, we keep those things in our sense of privacy and individuality and all those sorts of things. But then we are foregoing the blessing of someone being able to help us. Someone being able to lift us up. So if you're alone, there's no one to lift you up. The second word picture, which he paints, is in verse 11. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, we'll get to that in just a second. Look at verse 11. These two who are lying together. And of course, you know, many people will, will think about different things. But just think about in, in a place where there wasn't central heat on a cold night. And of course, in Palestine... You know, the, the typical family home would have a sleeping area where the entire family would be. And on a cold night, everyone would sleep close together for obvious reasons. It's kind of like when I go deer hunting in this kind of cold weather, I always like to have one of my boys with me in the double stand. Why? Well, there's a little body heat there next to me. I get cold these days, and so it's nice to have somebody over here warming up at least this side of my body a little bit. And if I start shivering too much, then, oh, okay, all right, they can, they can help me out. You think about that. I taught my boys, we have a wood stove at home. One big log never burns as well as two small logs. In fact, if the fire is smoldering and having some trouble and there's only one piece of wood, the very best thing that you could do is put a second piece of wood in because there's something about a fire that two pieces of wood together always burn better. Now think about that with the fervency of your Christian life. 
Sometimes it's hard for us to maintain our passion and our zeal, our, our, to stay encouraged, to continue serving the Lord because we're alone and we're, we're trying to go it ourselves. But isn't it a wonderful thing when a brother comes alongside and the two of you are passionate together about the things of the Lord and it stokes your fire a little bit? I mean, this is what it means to be part of a church. And so there's a second word picture. Look at the third word picture that he gives us in verse 12. If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two men standing together to withstand a foe multiply their power. They multiply their power. You see, there's the idea that their strength is multiplied because they are together. They can defend more fronts. Uh, They're harder to defeat. It's much easier to defeat one person than two people together. You think about this in so many applications. and, And I've said this before. Our enemy loves to get people singled off from the flock. He isolates through all different kinds of ways, through suspicion or fear or mistrust or betrayal or disappointment. And, and he gets people to withdraw and, and to, to, to kind of pull back and maybe stop attending services and get off on their own. And all of a sudden, they're in a place where they're spiritually vulnerable. They're vulnerable to lies that they wouldn't have believed before, vulnerable to temptations that they wouldn't have given in to before, but now they're alone, and really they'd be so much better off if there was someone standing with them. And of course, he makes the statement, a threefold cord is not easily broken. A threefold cord, that means if you could have more than two, it's even better. There is some measure of safety in numbers. Now, there's no safety in numbers if you're opposed to the Lord, but there is something to be said for the benefit that comes from standing together. Now, think about all the applications to this truth about companionship being better. Of course, there's some truth concerning marriage and family, and it's, it's not necessarily God's will for every person to get married, but generally speaking, it's usually God's will for people to get married and to have a family. This is usually God's pattern or God's way of life, and this is a tremendous blessing. This brings a special kind of companionship, a lifelong companionship. It's intended to be a fellowship together around the things of the Lord, and certainly there's many applications of these verses to a Christian marriage and to a Christian family. I think there's also some applications of these verses to friendship and fellowship. I'm intrigued by this idea, and I've been reading about it and thinking about it for a long time. Social scientists tell us that men in the United States of America are in crisis. And one of the reasons that men are in crisis is because the average American male has exactly zero true friends. No one that they can talk to. No one that is a companion to them. And this is a dangerous thing. God didn't make us to be alone. 
He made us to need companionship. And I realize that there's lots of inconveniences to friendship and difficulties to friendship and risks involved in friendship. But the truth is, men, there's not a one of you that God made to be all by yourself all the time. He's made us to need companionship. And we have to be intentional in building those kinds of friendships. We have to be intentional in forging those partnerships, in in not going it alone. And, And really, as we think about it as Christians, we desperately need the friendship of fellowship. We need to have people in our lives who think the same way about the truth of God and can help us to stand for the things of God. And that's why God has put us in a church. You know what's so sad to me in this generation? This truth notwithstanding, so many people have made the choice for one reason or another to say, I don't really need a church family. I, I, I can go it myself. Listen, I've got my five favorite internet teachers and I listen to them teach and preach and that's good enough. That's all that I need. No, that's not all that you need. The internet will never supply what you need in a church family. It's it's incapable of doing that. Because we are wired, we are made to need face-to-face relationships. We're we're wired in such a way that we need accountability and we we need companionship. And actually, I know this is hard to imagine, but we actually need the kind of relationships where we disclose to others who we are, where there's a share or an exchange of what is in our heart. And again, for many reasons, many people have withdrawn from that. Even in the bounds of a New Testament church, they've drawn back from that because they're afraid of others knowing what's on the inside. But God says that we need this kind of fellowship. This is a New Testament principle. It's not just here in the book of Ecclesiastes. But he reminds us, two are better than one. And I urge you to consider that. Can you think, at the end of life, at the end of life, do you really want to be all alone with no one? What a sad picture that is. All right, so he says that Contentment is better. He says that companionship is better. Let's move on to the last one in verses 13 through 16. And truthfully, this is the most puzzling one. Did any of you think, what in the world is that talking about when we read those verses? If you didn't, I did. And I'm still not sure if I totally understand it. But let's look at these verses. He makes a statement in verse 13... Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. Now he goes on to tell a story. And there's a lot of different interpretations or ideas about what this story is speaking about. The language is a little bit difficult to decipher. But if you notice, if you follow the the train from verse 14 on, it seems like there is... Someone who's in prison, a young man evidently, who is an unlikely candidate to be the king, but inexplicably he goes from the prison to the throne. 
And it seems like then there's all these other people in verse 15 that, that are in the kingdom. And then later, evidently down the road, there's a second child that shall stand up in his stead. In other words, whoever's going to inherit that kingdom. And then he talks about in verse 16 that there is on either end of these two kings, people before and people after, and none of those people know anything about these two kings. Now, what's interesting about all of this, there's a couple of truths that really stand out. So you can puzzle over the exact meaning of some of those things, and if you decipher it all, then you can come and let me know what you figured out. All right? I've got some ideas, but I do want to point out two things that are very clear. One, which we're going to return to here in just a moment, is that the statement, counsel is better. Counsel is better. And that's based on the statement in verse number 13, that there's an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. Going along with that truth, and we're going to come back to that in just a minute, going along with that truth is that the person who is in authority is in a tenuous place. We often see authority as a place of power, and and in some ways it is. But authority is a very fickle thing, especially the relationship between the person who is in authority and the people that they rule. The the, uh, framers of our Constitution said it this way, that those who govern do so with the consent of the governed. And truthfully, that's true of every form of government. Because always the people have more power than whoever is in power. So as long as the people are okay to go along with it, then that person can continue in authority. And, and yet there's, a, there's a, a fragile sense of this authority. When the, when the person who is in authority becomes unresponsive to the wishes of the people and stops listening to what they desire, won't listen to admonishment or counsel, they are in a very precarious place. In other words, for a king, it's easy to overestimate your grip on power or authority. And this has happened countless times. How many kings or prime ministers or presidents or whatever we want to talk about, how many of them have been overthrown in a coup? They thought they had power. They thought they had a grip on it. And then it was all gone. Now, the individual that's being spoken about may be someone that Solomon had in mind from the past. It could be a prophecy about the future. In fact, this very closely, this sounds a lot like what happened in the future of the kingdom with a young man named Jeroboam, who was a nobody, and then was given the ten tribes as the king, but then in his rebellion against God, he lost it, And he lost his grip on power. In fact, it could be descriptive of many of the kings that followed in the nation of Judah and Israel after Solomon's day, 
most of them reigning just a very short time because they thought that they were more powerful than they actually were. But notice that the reason for this comes right back in verse 13 to that lack of listening, who will no more be admonished. You see, we have this tendency, and it's true of those who are young and those who are old, of those who are in authority and those who are under authority. It's true of those with experience and those without experience. And what is true is that we don't like being told what to do. We don't like anybody pointing out an error. We don't like anybody advising us to go a different direction than what we're going. And what happens, according to verse 13, is you would be better off being a poor and wise child than being an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. Why? Because that old and foolish king is headed for trouble. He's headed for destruction. He thinks that he's got a grip on authority, but the truth is he's about to lose it. Now, the statement in verse 16 reminds us that people in authority come and go. Authority is a short-lived thing. Here in our country, we elect a president for four years. That's it. And then maybe they can run for re-election and maybe they'll get elected again. And so we might have somebody for eight years. <coughs> Beyond that, all right, somebody else is going to come. Now think about that. That's a pretty short time, isn't it? That's, that's not much time to have a grip on power. Uh, in some countries, they'll allow a monarch to serve for their entire life. And of course... Uh, the, the Queen of England just passed away, and she was, she was reigning for a long, long time. But even that is very short in comparison to eternity. But see, now God is making a point here, and I believe he's making this point through the wise man. He's reminding us that we have a tendency to think, I know better. I can keep a grip on my life. I can keep a, a control over my life. And we don't want to heed counsel, but the truth is that we are in a very precarious position when we do that. Very much, we're in a place where our life could quickly be out of control, where we could lose everything that we've hoped for or worked for. And that's why he's reminding us that counsel is better. You'd be better off not being the king. You'd be better off being a poor child who's wise enough to listen to advice and follow that advice because at least you have the potential to go somewhere good at least there's a potential to go up a king who's old and foolish and refuses to be admonished the only place he's going is down his power is going to be toppled now the sad thing is that many people cling desperately to their grip on power and influence they don't want to listen to anyone they know better than everyone that's around them. But they forget. Their influence is waning. Their influence is being used up. And always, there is another generation coming. And most of the time, the next generation isn't all that impressed with the authority that's in place. In fact, 
it's a plague of younger generations, basically for the history of mankind, that they always know better than whoever's in power. Except they forget that once they get their chance and they're in power, there's another generation coming. And that generation despises them just as much as they despise the people who were before them. It's an ironic thing. Every generation thinks they've got it figured out, thinks that they know better than anyone else. They've figured out all the things that the people before did wrong, and we're going to do better. Just wait. The people who come after you are going to say you failed miserably as well. But we have a common problem. And our common problem is that we really don't like listening to counsel. We think that we know better. We all ought to come to the place where we could be admonished, where we could receive counsel from someone who could speak into our life and say to us, you're not going the right way. Some dads that could benefit from this, to have somebody in your life to say to you, hey, brother, you're going the wrong way. What you're doing with your family is not the right thing. There's some pastors who could benefit from this. There's some presidents who could benefit from this. There's some bosses who could benefit from this. There's some just ordinary people who can benefit from this because counsel is mutually beneficial. It's something that could come to any of us and could improve our life if we would only have the humility to receive the counsel that is given to us. Now, as we think about these three truths, contentment is better. Companionship is better. Counsel is better. I thought of this. I thought, what is the ultimate answer to all of these needs that we have? And you know what it is? It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the better way. Tonight... If you have Jesus, you have everything that you need. There's not a thing that you need if you have Jesus. He's going to take care of all of your physical needs. He's going to, he's going to care for you. But more importantly, He's got your spiritual needs covered. If you have Jesus, you have everything. Tonight, if you have Jesus, you have real companionship. You have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. What a joy it is to know that he will never leave us and never forsake us. We could feel alone because no one else is standing with us, but if you have Jesus in your life, he will always stand with you. And if you have Jesus tonight, you always have a counselor to guide you. You always have one who can speak to you words of peace, who can point you in the right direction. He is, in fact, the way. And he can show you the path to walk in. In other words, tonight, you and I are completely dependent upon Jesus Christ for the better way. We could try to make our life better without Christ, but we'll fail miserably because our flesh will always get in the way. But if we have Jesus, we have everything that we need. Tonight... I hope that you'll think about life a little bit differently. 
And think especially about the benefits that you have as a believer. Because if you have Jesus, wow. I was just reading in the book of 2 Corinthians about Jesus Christ. That in Christ, all the promises of God are yea and amen. I just got excited about that. There is a better way.